open the door and welcome. You're right here and it's right now. It can't be any other time, can it not? And you have either found, hatched, or entered the wrong direction and you're at the Fishing Without Bait website where we live a life without definitive expectations and ask people to participate in their lives rather than wishing and hoping and waiting for something to happen. This is a challenge podcast and if you'd like to just sit back there and listen and sit back in your chair, then you can certainly do that. However, we're looking for people who would prefer perhaps not to stay in the Navy, but to rather be a pirate occasionally and maybe to stand on the front of the ship even today and wave your cutlass and saying, take no prisoners. And that's what we're talking about doing in life, a lifetime without definitive expectations. Let's not look for, let's not look for things. Let's wait for them to happen. We challenge people to go down rabbit holes rather than avoid them. And as we often come through our lives, we deal with like-minded people. When we're good bowlers, we don't try to insinuate ourselves into golf leagues. And keeping that in mind, we just happen to be in right places at right times. Nothing ever happens by mistake, and I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a young lady by the name of Joanna Lowe. Miss Lowe, welcome aboard. Thank you for having me. Miss Lowe is a film and theater actor, a director, a producer, an acting teacher, a voiceover coach, a published poet, a produced playwright, and a spoken word artist. And what I was particularly interested in after listening to her CD entitled uh, Epiphany, and we want to hear all about that, I found that we were like-minded people and she follows along a lot of our lines on fishing without bait and particularly in full impact mindfulness. So we uh, discussed it a little bit earlier before we discussed it a little earlier before we began recording about your entry into Pittsburgh. And could you talk to us a little bit about that, Joanna? Well, sure. I came to Pittsburgh in fifth grade after I grew up in State College. My father was a minister, so we moved around quite a bit. And um, after living in State College, my parents had just come from Iowa. Then we moved to Philly. Then we moved to Pittsburgh. And it was at the time when I had just found my group of friends. I was really happy in Philly. And then my parents wrenched me out of that school, right in the middle of the school year, actually, and to Pittsburgh, which was dark and dirty and ugly and bitter. And I hated it. I was more angry at them for losing my friends. But um, it wasn't until... Let's see, I think I was late in high school. I had gone to visit my sister in Colorado, and that is God's country. That is the most beautiful state in the country. And I was flying back to Pittsburgh, and I thought, boy, I've missed Pittsburgh. Oh, no. Oh, fine. I love this city now. So it seduced and finally won my heart over, and now this is the city that I've chosen as my home and to make my art in. So you, you've taken a different perspective. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I, I got to watch it become something we had. um, We had moved here while Pittsburgh was still in recovery from the steel fallout, still lost. And uh, all of a sudden it decided enough was enough and it was time to be remade. And I absolutely, I love that personality. I love that suck it up and get on with things. 
make something new. You can sit about around and whine about things, or you can do something about it. Well, I'm kind of hearing that you remade yourself also. Oh, I absolutely did. It happened maybe subconsciously, intentionally at first, but I really do feel like I've made a transformation. On this program, we often challenge people when we ask them which end of the horse they're looking at, because sometimes when people are at the back end of a horse, well, that's exactly what they see. And then I ask folks, well, move around to the front end of the horse, and what do you see? And I say, well, I see the, the smiling face of a horse, a nice, beautiful face of a horse. And I say, okay, well, who moved? Did the horse move? Mm. No. Who moved? Well, I did. Did you have a choice to move? Yes, I did. So most people, Joanne, spend much time and futility turning into stress and anger and frustration over trying to manipulate the horse or trying to manipulate situations when the only thing that they can control is themselves. Yes. Well, it was either learn or, um, or get caught in the quagmire that I only have control over my actions and reactions. That's one of the things that I continue to tell my daughter, that uh, it is a shame when other people treat you badly. It is a shame when things happen, but you are responsible for your actions and reactions, and that's all that you have control over. And that sounds to me like a whole lot of developing choice. I read an interview with you where you said a line about Pittsburgh, bursting at the seams with rare vision and original endeavors. And I was wondering whether you were more describing Pittsburgh or describing yourself. <laughs> I would love to think of myself as as being that way. I, I don't uh, I don't see myself that way. Convince me that you're not. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to do that. I don't know that I will. Um, I've been, I, I have no idea if this is the right time to even bring it up, but it's funny. I have tried to, I have recognized, especially in the last couple of years, how my perception of myself is very different from what is true and what is perceived by others. So I've, I've tried to at least accept that dissonance and address it whenever, whenever possible. So the fact that um, because of my training and because of instinct, I know that I have good ideas. As soon as I put them out there and people follow them, I immediately feel really self-conscious to be like, why would you do what I ask you to do? Why would you, why would you ever think that's a good idea? Meanwhile, one side of my brain knows this is a good idea. I know it's good. There is worth in that. So being in the industry that you're in, uh, quite often I ask people to ask Quite often I ask people to tell me the difference between arrogance and confidence. Arrogant people are very difficult to deal with and prefer not to be around Mm -hmm. them. However, confident people, you follow them and you listen to them. Could you give us a a little bit of your experiences with that? Absolutely. It's funny that you bring that up. Um, It was just a few years ago. This is after over a decade um, of being in theater, public theater outside of school, public theater endeavors, um, and writing. And it was just a couple years ago where I had to recognize the fact that being confident in my abilities was a very different thing than being arrogant because how I have approached myself is that having any kind of confidence meant that was arrogant. And it's not a healthy version 
of, of approaching one's, one's self-perspective and self-worth. But for me, it, uh, it, it seemed a healthier, a, a more humble option to think myself less than. Well, one thing we always want to ask, is it the truth? There's three essentials to recovery, and we're all in recovery from something. Sure. And that's honesty, open-mindedness, and the willingness to try. And that's treating yourself as if you would treat a friend. So what we often address with people is the inner critic that's inside of them that says that I shouldn't say this or mm-hmm. I cannot do that. I cannot. Well, I challenge people to say, well, tell me what you can do. I'm not interested in telling me what you cannot do. I'm interested in telling me what you can do. So quite often we talk about becoming that observer behind the thinker and speaking to ourselves like a friend and not fighting with ourselves. That's just exhausting. It is. It wasn't so much a, a fight, but I had become so miserably comfortable with seeing myself as unworthy of having a voice, unworthy of just so overthankful for any any nice compliment. I don't deserve this. I don't. And I realized only recently how unhealthy and how pervasive that foundational belief was. Well, quite often, Joanne, I'll sit down and ask people, those things that you've just said to me, would you say to a friend? Would you sit down and say those things to a friend? Would you? No. And the reason for that is? <laughs> uh, well, because I love and respect them and I hate my friends. You I love hate and, to you see love, them. You love and respect your friends and you hate to see them upset and hurt. And, and hurting hurt themselves. Feelings. Right. Not respecting themselves the way that they are respected However, by let's stand back and look at this situation. Yeah. So, and conversely, what you're telling me, my, conversely, what you're telling us is at that time that you didn't like yourself. No. Well, I, I, I did not believe myself worthy of being liked or loved. Mm. I'll pick out a, a particular spot in an interview that I've read with you when you were talking about a time that someone had made you feel worthless. And then you stepped back, looked at the situation, and said, I let myself feel worthless. Mm -hmm. Could you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, This was about six months out from my divorce, which was an ugly, messy situation. And a good friend of mine that I went to college with, he was a, a drummer and had been the session drummer for this open mic, but it was the best open mic in the city. The best singer songwriters attended. And he said, this is therapy. This is music therapy. When all of this is happening in your life, I want you to come out and do this. I want you to come and just sit there. I will save a seat at the bar. You will know that's my jacket on there and you can sit there. And I would, I would show up whenever I could get there and I'd sip a beer and just absorb the music. And it was, I I wasn't being bombarded by people that I knew. Nobody knew. It was, it was just a way to sit and be in warmth. And I got to know a few people, but I was always his friend and that was fine. Um, But I got more comfortable in the scene and there was one day and of course, Coming out of one relationship, you you find yourself reacting in lots of different ways. And I've also identified where I'm like, hmm, this is a reaction period. I was not so self-aware at that point. 
um, reacting in all kinds of ways and um, both open to using and being used. And someone used me in a way that I had not expected. And I was very hurt by that. And the way that they treated me was, was, was dissonant from what had actually happened. And I, my first reaction was to defend myself and justify myself. And, 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 and why would you treat me that way? And well, obviously I must have deserved this. And instead of feeling stupid and crawling under a rock, which is what a normal human reaction would be. And I think it has been my reaction forever. For whatever reason, I decided to do something about it. I hated being out of control. I hated being used and dismissed. And so I decided I would take control over what I could. So I realized that uh, this person had uh, had treated me without respect, but that was on him, and um, I could take control of that. I his actions don't make me worthless. How I treat myself reflects my worth, and hence another bit of an epiphany. Exactly. So I was like, he he doesn't force me to feel this way. I choose how I react to this situation. And on an impulse, I text my drummer friend and I say, what if I read something? What if I read some of my poetry at the open mic? And he immediately said, yes. And I went, no, never mind. (laughs) And he was like, yep. And I'll back you up on drums. So it'll be like the sixties beatnik. And of course that's what I had in my head. But as soon as he said, yes, I was like, no, 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 never mind." And he was like, yeah. And I also got this bass player to join us too. And I'm going, this is out of control. No, 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 no. Wait. I feel like I'm intruding on your world. I feel like I am taking advantage. He was like, no, people have read stuff before. It doesn't happen very often, but it's happened and it's totally welcome. And I'm like, no, no, no. He was like, sorry, you're already on the list. Now, I had not just chosen a night at this open mic where I would be surrounded by people that I'm intimidated by. I chose the Christmas party, which was the one night of the year that all the singer-songwriters in the city that aren't able to come any other night, all of them come that night. The place is literally packed shoulder to shoulder to capacity for whatever insane reason. That was the night that I decided to do something. And I was absolutely mortified. I'm a published poet. I had written, um, plenty. Um, I truly think that it saved my life in the past, but I had never performed it. So I had, I had no, no, basis, no foundation, no training, no. And I'm standing in this cafe and I'm, I'm throwing back the beers, trying, trying to get comfortable with the idea that I would be doing this up on stage. And right before they call my name, one of the city's best guitar players walks up to my friend and says, Hey, mind if I join? 
and a saxophone player walks up to my friend and says, hey, mind if I join too? And I'm standing shaking in front of them going, "Uh, uh, uh," and my friend's like, yeah, let's do this. They call my name. My friend grabs my hand and lifts it up so I have no choice. And he's like, she's right here. And then drags me onto the stage. And I'm absolutely terrified, but my theater training has taught me you go big or go home. It's when you go halfway that you look the dumbest. So you jump out of the plane. It felt like I was skydiving again. I turned off my brain and I jumped. And I came to, I don't remember the first half of the poem. I came to halfway through where I all of a sudden became aware of this soaring, undulating jazz behind me and the entire room packed wall to wall of faces wrapped and silent. Now, it's a very respectful listening audience, but rarely do you catch everybody silent. It just doesn't happen. I literally heard a fork drop in my pause. And then somebody began to clap and my friend held up his hand and stopped them mid-clap and everybody got hush again and we started into the second half of the piece. And I was aware of what was happening there and I just remember absorbing, like hearing the jazz and feeling me perform it and seeing everybody just completely invested in what I was doing. And then it ended. And like I said, it's a very respectful audience. Everybody claps. There might be a whoop here and there. They erupted, cheering and clapping and their fists overhead and everything. It was unprecedented to my experience in this. And then I jumped off the stage because it was just too much. I was like, I need to get out of the spotlight and jump off the stage. (laughs) And several people that I had met through my friend there was like, I, 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 I didn't know you did this, Joanna. I didn't know you did this. And I said, I don't. That was the first time. And they said, well, this is who you are now. And they didn't let me stop. And I tried. I would hide in the back of a room. People would ask me to show up to an event. And I would sit in a corner innocuously hiding behind musicians kept coming up to me. Can I, can I please play with you? Can I please play? And I kept thinking. I kept going, thank you so much. Thank you so much for playing with me. It was an honor, but I kept trying to hide and they kept dragging me up on stage. It was at least two years after that first time on stage. After the third time I had been approached by a record producer, the third time I finally went, okay, what do you mean? And he said, I mean, you show up to my studio with your band and I will make your CD. Holy crap. Well, then we had a CD release concert. And my friend was the drummer for that concert. And it was beforehand. I said, I was, I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. I'm so honored. I'm so honored. And he said, Joanna, it's time to shut up. We are not here because we love you. We do love you but we're here because we actually believe in what you're doing and it's time that you act like it too. So get out on that stage and own it. And so I, I kind of gotten lovingly browbeaten 
by my friend who had stood by and watched me say, I'm not worthy, but I am so thankful. And, and I've, I've tried at least to address the internal schematic. That's a little, that's dissonant in the hopes that, you know, that looking at it as the first problem. And, and I have, I've noticed changes by being aware things start to adjust. So while you were describing so vividly and painting a living picture, it was a microcosm of every one of our last 107 episodes uh, when we're talking about, number one, being in that comfort zone. And sometimes comfort zones, Joanna, we view them in a different way, that we think that's a nice place, a place where we detox, a place where we de-stress. However, most of the time, comfort zones are made up of bounds and barriers that we create ourselves. and Nothing ever grows, nothing ever is accomplished, or growth does not take place inside of a comfort zone. It takes place outside of it. So the idea is that we view people as a balloon with an infinite capacity, for example. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about dissonance, it's, I I irritate people, I purposely irritate people (laughs) to stretch that balloon up against those boundaries so they do get restless, irritable, and discontent, and they use that energy. Emotions are wonderful. They're neither good nor bad at your reaction to them. So apparently that energy of anger and frustration against this individual, and you might want to thank them someday for yeah, doing this for you. I think I have. Is, <laughs> is that you stepped out of that comfort zone and says, and all courage is, is the ability to deal with fear. Yeah. So you, you got that fear. Once upon a time with you, sweetheart, In a land of home and far away, there's a house of gingerbread dreams and carnival scraps of paper hearts, where we conspire traps for dancing bears, creating mobiles weaved with wonder over the existence of unicorns. Rainbows arching a sky over talking lions. Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com, where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in flying the colors of Fishing Without Bait, click the shop icon on our website. We have clothing, mugs, cell phone cases, and so much more. Show the world that you fish without bait. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.